the dust blows forward and the dust blows back. Down in Dachau Blues. All the pots you build. Well, the goldfish, the harmonious dance. Ratchet buds burst. The way you were dancing, I knew you'd never come back. You were straight into Hello, and welcome to Track by Track presents Trout Mask Replica. Uh, my name is Joel Bacher, guest hosting for Darren Husted as we go track by track through Captain Beefheart and his magic bands legendary 1969 double album trout mask replica today we are discussing hair pie bake one which is track five of trout mask replica on side one uh this was recorded in woodland hills california at the house that has been colloquially referred to as the trout house um sometime late in 1968 or early 1969 i don't know if we have an exact date for those uh house recordings this was prior to going into the studio uh, personnel on this track is Bill Harkelroad, a.k.a. Zootorn Rolo on guitar, Jeff Cotton, a.k.a. Antenna Jimmy Siebens on guitar, Mark Boston, a.k.a. Rocket Morton on bass, John French, a.k.a. Drumbo on drums, Don Van Vliet, a.k.a. Captain Beefheart on saxophone, and Victor Hayden, a.k.a. The Mascara Snake on bass clarinet. Uh, length of this track is 4 minutes and 58 seconds. Uh, and my guest today, it is a great honor to have on the show, uh, Eric Gudas. Uh, Eric is a writer. He has written a full-length book of poetry. He writes regularly for the Los Angeles Review of Books. And he created a put together an epic All About Jazz article about Trout Mask Replica, which I have referenced many, many times thus far on this podcast and will continue to reference many more. So, Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So when I, um, you've covered an enormous amount in the All About Jazz article, uh, specifically the um, the connections between uh, Van Vliet's music and jazz, which has been much discussed and often kind of misinterpreted uh, over time. Um, but just to to begin at the beginning, how how were you introduced to uh, Captain Beefheart and the Magic Band? How'd you first hear this music? Well... I was I was thinking about this last night when I was reading your questions. I, th- I think I read about him long before I listened to him. There was a 1987 Rolling Stone list of best albums that I actually got a lot of good tips from, um, including Trout Mask Replica. But I never I couldn't find one. And then I can't I can't uh, overestimate this. In 1988, um, when I was about 16, uh, Wester Bank's Psychotic Reactions and Carburetor Dung was published. And it made just a monster impact mm-hmm. on all the white teenage music hipsters, probably everywhere, but in my little circle in Maryland. And I, I had already known, for instance, Astral Weeks by um, Van Morrison. And the first, one of the first essays in there is this like deep dive into Astral Weeks. So I'm like, oh, my God, this guy's like writing like these incredible essays about my favorite record. Um, and I don't think that he actually they published Grail Marcus put any of his uh, writings about Beefheart in that book. But he mentioned Beefheart a lot. And so I had read, you know, read about Beefheart and Rolling Stone and, and also Lester Bangs would talk about Beefheart in terms of these other people who I hadn't really heard about, but jazz musicians like Albert Aylor and Elmore James and Blind Willie Johnson, and which was really different from the kind of very square Rolling Stone magazine of the late 80s, which was just like straight kind of white rock. Um, so mm-hmm. um, I finally got a cassette of this uh, and I, I looked it up yesterday. It came out in 1988. 
of, of it was called Abba Zaba at a used record store in my hometown, and it had like a combination of the the Buddha record songs on it. So the ones that really made an impact on me were Abba Zaba, Electricity, Autumn's Child, Twenty uh, Fifth Century Quaker, and definitely Candy Corn. I that I loved. I I really loved that song. Um, and so I listened to this tape obsessively. I'm like this is just great music. I can't wait to get my hands on the on the Trout Mask. And it's, it's it just seems weird that at the time you would take you like one or two years to actually get your hands on something. But it was it was just a different era. I I don't know. Maybe I could have ordered it. But finally, sometime in the winter of either eighty eight, eighty nine, or eighty nine, ninety, some friends and I drove to maybe it's twenty miles away to this one like super hip record store, and I finally you know got my hands on Trout Mask Replica. So I was probably, you know, 17 maybe. And you have to realize, I, I had been looking for this record for at least a year, thinking about it, maybe two years. I hadn't heard, I hadn't heard a song on it. Uh, so I had heard all those great songs from, from Mirror Man and um, um, the first record um, on this, you know, set of bootleg tape, but I hadn't safe heard Safe as any milk. Stuff. Yeah, safe as milk. Um, so... Um, so that was probably the first, so it's, I, I wanted to tell that story just to kind of like give a little time capsule of, you know, cause my daughter, I mean, she can pull up what's kind of whatever she wants on Apple music or Spotify or, or, or whatever. I mean, her whole generation is just has a different relation to, to music, but at least for me, it's like, if, if you wanted to find it, you had to, you had, like if somebody told you like, you know, Charles Mingus, you had to like go find it. Um, it wasn't like it was right there. When I was younger and I first heard the band named Husker Du, I just presumed they were a metal band because they mm-hmm. had an umlaut in their name. Mm-hmm. And only mm-hmm. metal bands had umlauts. And it, it was like there was no place for me to hear what they sounded like. So I just kind of was operating on this mistaken assumption that Husker Du was a metal band for a really long period of time. Right. Well, these bands had, yeah, the, uh, had mystiques about them. And unless like I had a friend in junior high and he had a, like, I had a lot of friends who had older brothers and sisters who were, you know, who had, who had this stuff like Husker Du mm-hmm. or, um, I don't know, like my first girlfriend, her older sister had a, was able to like, her claim to fame was that she could figure out the lyrics to REM songs. I had another friend whose brother. That took work a, at that time. Yeah. Uh, uh, somebody else had, um, a, a double nickels on the dime by the Minutemen, which was, you know, just so, so awesome. But it's like, if I didn't know these people with older siblings, I wouldn't like Husker Du, I wouldn't have even heard it. Um, in 1980 something I, yeah i would have been like oh what's that yeah it took me a while to find a copy as well i i ended up because i i got to it later it was it was mid 90s by the time i i finally heard it and i i got my cd of trout mask replica at of all places a borders books and music yeah, why not why which not? is still funny to me that at this this you know uh basically big box book and cd store that i managed to pick up this this icon of of counterculture music yeah well i mean probably by then it was all right so you uh based on the emails that we've exchanged you you grew up in maryland and you were um you knew some of the people who were in some of the uh, dc and maryland uh groups of the 80s well my hometown bands were um the hated and moss icon so um and i went to see a lot of you know they were just like shows in local I don't know, kind of venues, firehouses, whatever. Um, and then there was this bigger scene in D.C. with Fugazi. And I'm not sure. I think I saw Fugazi at least once. 
Sonic Youth came to town in 1989. It was a big deal, and and they played with Fugazi. But I didn't. Mm. I wasn't a regular Fugazi uh, person. And then I had friends who were going to the 9:30 Club in DC, or who's their their older brothers or sisters, and they they were actually seeing some of these bands like the Minutemen. Oh, who else? Uh, probably Husker Du. Um, maybe the Meat Puppets. I don't know if the Meat Puppets got if they came any any bands that came to the 9:30 Club. Probably somebody from my hometown, you know, was there. Um, so, you know, I just uh, kind of saw my hometown bands, but I always felt like there was this whole other scene, um, and of you know, kind of DC music, and and that then that national bands would come to DC. So, um, yeah. I mean, I wasn't really a, a scenester, but I, you know, it's like great. I mean, those are two really great hometown bands to have. I'm, I'm, su- I'm surprised that that stuff hasn't come out commercially. No kidding. Um, you know, but I, you know, and they played great shows. I mean, they were, they were very different bands that hated were like, you know, it's like they were all Che Guevara versions of Che. I mean, it's such a, such a ferocious band. Uh, and my friend Miggy, Dan, Dan was uh, one of the sort of co-guitar guitarists of that band they were just you know i mean they were just like you know just leave it all on the floor they were just incredible just you know and then moth icon was this sort of more contemplative band and they would do these more kind of longer jams i mean they were really cool hometown band a a couple of the bands that that you mentioned in there uh the minutemen and the meat puppets i know the minutemen explicitly stated there was a beef heart influence in their sound and i've always heard beef heart and the meat puppets although i don't know if they've ever necessarily explicitly said one way or the other uh, i have to ask if up on the sun lived up to your expectations but of your of your pre-review because i think it's my favorite meat puppets album yeah i forget what i said i mean but i i love it i mean i, I it's just it's just an awesome record i mean i wish I, 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 a lot of times i taped those off my friends at the time and i wish i'd bought my own copies because you could buy like an sst copy of the you know the up on the sun i just didn't do it no i love it i mean i could probably sing the whole thing for you all the way through i mean it's um yeah, after that, let's see, what was the one after that? Um, Out My Way. I kind of just, st- you know, certain bands you sort of stop at a certain point with. And I, I guess I kind of stopped mm. with Up on the Sun with, with the Meat Puppets. I didn't really like their stuff after that. I think I just think it's, yeah, I agree with you. I think it's, I think it's super. Um, so you're coming out of this pretty, this uh, milieu with all this really great music going on and you know this kind of uh, culture of people who are into music and seeking things out and finding uh, finding unique um, ex- musical expressions. Once you finally got your hands on Trout Mask Replica, what was your impression of it? What did how did how did it hit you? Oh, I just loved it. I, I played it over and over again. I, I I um I just thought it was fantastic. I could play it over to go over again every day now, and still, I mean, it's just a it's it's just a monster of a record. I mean, all just you know the songs are so different from each other. It's so kind of hard. It's so hard hitting the 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 musical tracks, which I understand better now than I did, you know, in the late '80s. They're very they're very complex, but they're also just very, you know, like they're very hard hitting. I mean, the, the guys are they're they're really, you know, um, are are it's it's not um, you know it's not soft rock, um, and the the word by no means. You know, I loved I loved. Um, the work, you know, the Beefheart singing. I mean, I had been a fan of, um, you know, those, those Tom Waits records that came out in the 80s. Um, uh, 
about swordfish trombone sure like swordfish trombone yeah, I, I i discovered tom waits on uh mtv in 1984 and, and i and i kept it in my head for almost for a few months that name swordfish trombones so I, I got those records kind of as they were coming out i guess swordfish trombones not but definitely like rain dogs and frank's wild years i got those like kind of like you know right like the day they came out i was like a, a super fan so you know i was into like you know tom waits mm-hmm. and howlin wolf so like you know beef heart you know didn't sound all that far out to me vocally um but he but in terms of his lyrics they were just you right. know, really far out that and they were you know it was just an incredibly um far out album it wasn't at all i mean you know, even those Tom Waits albums, I mean, they're, they're great, but they, 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 they get to a certain point in there. They're, they're sort of like regular albums that you can listen to. Whereas this was, you know, I feel like Captain Beehart is just like a kind of like a raging, you know, um, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, I mean, I, I, um, it's the real thing. It's, it's really, it's really, it's not, you know, it's like, um, you know, like Exile on Main Street is kind of like a, it's like a museum of rock in a way. It's a great album, but it's a, you know, it's like, well, we're going to do this kind mm-hmm. of blues now. Oh, now we'll get Billy Preston to do the gospel number. And, you know, now we'll, do, but whereas this is just like, you know, um, it's the real thing. Um, I read, I, I read this, it was sort of a dumb tweet, but I really liked it. Um, and I forget what the guy was retweeting, but he said, all tweets are performative except this tweet. This tweet is a tweet of pure being. And then he, he tweeted somebody else's tweet. And I kind of, I sort of feel like that way about, <laughs> about, um, uh, about the Trout Mask Replica. Like it really is like the, it's the real thing. It's not about the, it's not like about the real thing. It's not descriptive. It's, it, it really is this sort of primal stuff. And, um, you know, I just, I just love it. I mean, it's the, the very fact that the song is called hair pie. Uh, I think primes you for a, a tad, tad, a tad of a sophomore mm-hmm. viewpoint. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so I gave, I, I gave each guest uh, the opportunity to pick the song or songs that they wanted to to discuss, and you uh, selected here Pie Bake One, um, based on the uh, what you indicated was this. This is to you the clearest representation of what Frank Zappa's original idea was for the album. The kind of field recording that they they ended up abandoning yeah i mean i i don't that's not why i like it because i think it's a zappa-esque song but i think it's it it it, it, it's a it's sort of like one version one version of what the album could have been sure sure um and you know at the time when i first heard it i wasn't aware of what was in the studio and what was recorded you know at the at the house and in fact some of the studio stuff is sort of sounds you know they have some kind of you know, these sort of goofy interstitial tracks. So it was sort of hard to know, like if it was a quote unquote Bush recording or if it was a studio recording, you know, for me, just with the kind of vinyl in front of me and whatever packaging they have, I don't even, mm. I know they didn't, the one I got didn't have a lyric sheet. So for years I got the lyrics, not wrong. I just thought of them in my own way, but I mean, I, yeah, I think it's one version of, of the album I think it's it's probably a heavily constructed song. It's hard to know who the quote unquote author of the song is, whereas other songs, you know, the author is more clearly uh, Beefheart. Um, but uh, I also thought probably nobody else would choose this song because it's kind mm-hmm. of, you know, it's maybe not one of the top ten of, 
you know, I mean, my, my favorite song is still the moonlight on Vermont. And that's just, you know, it's the most conventional song on the album. It, 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 um, but it's just such a raging monster of a song, but you know, I'm sure somebody already picked that. So I thought I'd pick something that was kind of out of the way. Um, but that I might have some insight into just because I, you know, looked in, have listened, have listened to it a lot and thought about maybe how it came together. Um, and how it kind of represents, I think, a lot of stuff about the album. Yeah, actually, yesterday I recorded an episode um, uh, where we were discussing Hair Pie Bake 2, and that was with Ben Waters. And he indicated that that track was where he was mm-hmm. able, that track was mm-hmm. the key to the album for him. Because uh, it the, instru- the instrumentals gave him the opportunity to hear how the music was constructed and how they were all playing against each other without the 600-pound mm-hmm. gorilla of Van Vliet's voice which um, kind of dominates the mix on so many of the other tracks that frequently you can't really hear what the rest of the band is doing. Um, so this is the first instrumental track uh, on the album, and this is also your first uh, face full of Don's saxophone playing. Uh, we've got Don Van Vliet and Victor Hayden, the Mascara Snake, starting this track off with a saxophone and bass clarinet duet which i had to pull this quote from mike barnes's book he says their dialogue sounds like the mating ritual of two gigantic birds which um i think is a really fantastic analogy for how these two guys sound as they're blowing their horns at each other uh you talk a little bit in the uh all about jazz article about um van vliet saxophone playing and the connection that that may or may not have had that certainly had in his interpretation uh to to avant-garde jazz music um would you be willing to to expand on that that a little bit here because i think even people like myself who who adore van vliet's music uh have kind of a mixed feeling about about his saxophone playing yeah Uh, i i i can talk about that but i want to i i pulled from my from my piece since you talked about the how they what did did you say it sounds like an an antiphony of of birds yeah giant mating bird calls yeah I thought I thought too. They're 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 doing their wild animal noises, and uh, I made a list of all the references to animals in Trout Mask Replica, which you may like to have. Um, it here we go: trout, worms, blue jay, mice, gophers, doves, big black shiny bug, white ice horse, beetle, thick black felt birds, white elephant escaped from the zoo, bees, goldfish, crows, chickens, old puff horse, eagle, jackrabbit, oriole horse. Favorite dog, old spotted hog, china pig, one yellow butterfly, tiny green phosphorus worms, wild goose, cat, rooster, duck, bears, white ants, black ants, yellow ants, brown ants. So Beefheart's really interested in animals, and I, and he says in a in a in an interview, yes, he, says, he is. I, I don't, yeah, I don't, I, and and I think this 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 song actually starts with them sounding like animals. And it ends with actual animals barking, the, the bunch of dogs. So that's how I see this song. Is it, is it has to do with kind of the animal side of Trout Mask Replica. And he, he said in an interview, I think I sound more like a whale or a dolphin than I do John Coltrane. 
And in a sense, that's true because he's just kind of honking away, at, like you can hear in that song. But I don't, I don't buy it. I think he thought he was his. He actually sounded as good as Coltrane or Albert Ayler or um, Eric Dolphy or um, um, Archie Shep. I think those were the people he was listening to, and um, I, I think that he, he was such an egomaniac that he truly believed that he could just pick it pick a horn up and sound like Eric Dolphy, who was this incredibly accomplished musician and came to the sound he had over many, many years. I mean, an Eric Dolphy solo is a total work of art and you can transcribe it. And, and um, I, I honestly think that Van Vliet thought that he was just like a, this, this incredible autodidact free jazz player. Um, and I, I, I forget if, French has said this anywhere else, but he, he, he wrote to me that uh, that that um, they were listening to John Coltrane and and uh, Van Vliet said, if I just had took enough acid, you know, I could I could sound like that. Um, so I think when you when you when you hear his horn playing like like it's just like it's you it, there's just some kind of you have to accept on the one hand that it's just kind of I think it's, you know, pretty bad. Um, it's not, it's not real free jazz in the sense that these people like Archie Shepp and John Coltrane really were accomplished musicians and were able to, to a certain extent, like they, they knew what they were doing with, with their, with, with all their kind of different, um, you know, free jazz moves. Um, but at the same time, you know, he just adores that stuff so much. It's sort of like, you know, you can kind of, I mean, you know, when I was 16, I didn't know the difference between, you know, that the beginning of Hair Pie Bake One. And if you had played me like Albert A. or Spiritual Unity, I couldn't have told you the difference. Um, and so, and it's to an extent, I think you have to kind of just take it for what it is, which is like these guys really uh, having their, having their ceremony, having their ritual. Uh, and they're probably dressed up doing it. Um, and, and you know, take it for what it is. Um, I love it. I mean, it's, it's just sort of sounds like, well, what the hell is going on here? You know, are they, you know, they, they really don't have a lot of control over their, over their um, instruments. And I, I think especially Victor Hayden had, you know, I mean, bass clarinet is a very complicated instrument. I mean, they're just, I think, um, I think, I think Harkelrod said that, 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 that that uh, Van Vliet would push a lot of air through his his saxophone, and that's kind of what they're doing. They're just pushing a lot of air, yeah. but they're doing it, they're doing it rhythmically. They, they have a certain there's like just enough kind of rhythm and antiphony so that you feel like wow, this is like some kind of like a ritual or or ceremony, um, and that goes on for about a minute and thirty seconds, which is sort of a, about how long songs go on 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 trout mask replica so then something else entirely happens which is that the uh the the instrumental track starts to fade in and because it because it's actually the instrumental track is pretty rhythmically repetitive for the first few bars it almost sounds like they're backing up the the saxophones to me at least um and so it does there's this kind of it's sort of a mysterious moment or like well, what's happening is all of a sudden are we getting like this this band accompanying them and then um i mean i i didn't know this at the time but now i know that it was it was that was kunk right his name is kunk um 
was messing with the levels. Yes. He had the mm-hmm. whole, he had the, he had different parts of the house mic'd, and he's and he's messing with the levels. So 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 uh, Van Vliet and and Hayden are in one are in one part of the house doing their thing, and the band is rehearsing on the other part of the house. And he, he has a very primitive setup, so he's just kind of bringing up the levels on the band, and and he's and he probably got some headphones on, and he's hearing for the first time uh, the band rehearsing um, Hair Pie. And I'm glad you have you said Ben was able to talk about it, its musical properties because it, it's a very complex tune, but the way it's the way it's so poorly mixed and the way it's, it's kind of fading in, you it's hard to tell if it's a jam or not to me. And I listened to it a few times last night. It's hard Absolutely, to tell. Yeah. You can't really hear all the um you can't hear the, the you can't hear the the back and forth guitar parts. You can't really hear what um Boston is doing on his bass. You, I think you basically hear what Jeff Cotton is doing on his guitar, and then like somewhat of what um, uh, of of what uh, John French is doing on on the drums. So it's um, you're getting a kind of weird, like a very weird mix of the song. And then um, Kunk, I think he leaves one of the one of the horns in. He's mixing it on the spot. This is not after the fact mixing. This is like really verite mixing. <laughs> And that's what is one one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about it. Mm-hmm. It's really, it's just, you know, the whole idea of like sort of improvisation. I think is something that that Beefheart really wanted. But it's so funny that 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 he he drove the band so hard to know the songs by heart. Where and but he got to do the improvising. In this case, it's not just it's not just you know Hayden and and Van Vliet. It's also Kunk who's improvising the mix as as he goes. So you you kind of hear right. the. A lot of the, I believe, a lot of the the cotton guitar and John French's bass, and then the and then the horn playing, and the, and the and the guitar is hitting so hard that, it, that it's really like it's a part that he's playing. And as your as your other guest pointed out, it's a very sophisticated part, and and he's playing sort of in relation to the the two guitarists are always playing in relation to each other, but you can't tell that it just it you know it's it, what it sounded to me when I first heard it. I think was like. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing this guy's name right. Mark Rebo on those Tom Waits albums, like uh, uh, Frank's Wild Years oh, sure, yeah. and Rain Dog. That was my frame of reference when I first heard that song. I said, "Oh, this sounds like Mark Rebo." Um, and you know, but the, and the way Tom Waits would have these very super percussive, you know, kind of like drumming on a can type, you know, like you know, like you you could drum on anything, whatever type songs. And so that's kind, that was kind of probably my frame of reference when I was first hearing the song is it sounded like like a this you know mark rebo solos which were very astringent and dissonant and um now i feel lucky i got to see that band play i didn't realize that they didn't they only toured once um the tom waits band with oh that's fantastic i think greg cohen who went on to play with ornette coleman i think he was in that band too anyway i saw them in dc probably in the fall of 1988, I think. Um, so, so I got to see Mark Rebo, you know, do some of those, that great soloing. So it didn't, it didn't sound that far out to me, but well, you know, but but when I listen to it now, I'm like, wow, the mix is really like it's it's a really primitive sounding mix. And again, that's sort of part of the part of Beefheart's philosophy is getting into this. This uh, is that he, you know, um, he wanted a sort of primitive sounding record, and it it it's a so even though the song itself that they're rehearsing, Hair Pie, is actually very musically sophisticated, 
not not all of that comes across. That to, to me, it sounds more like a like a really whacked out guitar jam uh, with a with a with a saxophone that may or may not be playing with it along with it. Turns out it's not. There's no there's no connection yeah. between the sax solo at all. Uh, uh, unlike some of the other songs where where, where Beefheart's trying to play along with the song and maybe like wiping out like a Pachuco cadaver on this one, he he can't even hear what they're doing. It's just Kunk who's kind of bringing them both in, right? And with with, with this on the spot mix. Um, then fades into a conversation between um, Van Vliet and these two kids. Um, and it's sort of like so the music stops abruptly and then you realize, oh, there's people talking. Um, and I think you should probably like get those two kids' names in your players for this song just because they're such an important part of it. And you... You have to kind of listen on headphones. That's very true. Yeah, everyone remembers that little exchange. Yeah. Well, it's just so it, it's you, you can even without hearing what they're saying, you can hear it's an older it's an older voice and two kids whose voices haven't changed yet. But if you listen to it, it's just a hilarious exchange because Van Vliet is so he's so pompous. He's so fatuous. It's just like if if you like him, you have to accept this part of him that he's just like. You know, it's like that long uh, interview he does with, I think, Meatball, somebody, Meatball Fulton, when the record comes out. Um, right. He just, I mean, you just don't even want to listen to it because he sounds so full of himself. He's, he's like, well, yeah, we're Captain Beefheart and the Magic Band. And uh, we're, and he's, he's, you know, he's kind of, he's sort of <laughs> creepy older guy. He's like, we're out recording the bush. <laughs> and then he, you know, right. And then, you know, he's like saying, he doesn't really forget that it's called hair pie. He just wants to say neon meat dream of an octofish. Um, but he asked the, he asked the, the kids like what they think. And they're like, it's okay. And in, in unison, but you could tell they really, they're not yeah. all right. Into it, <laughs> you know, so, to me, they're kind of good stand-ins for the for the sort of the listener of the song, who probably a lot of a lot of sixteen-year-old kids did buy that album in nineteen sixty-nine, and and couldn't get into it. I mean, I have a I have a friend who is who's you know that age now, and he says, "Yeah, right. I'm sure I have a copy of it, but I didn't really listen to it." And it's sort of like they're kind of like stand-ins for for the for the listener who can't really get it because it's you know. It's just too out there. It's it's too abrasive. In this case, it's just too like chaotic. Um, so it, it, it's sort of neat that you have this these characters who are almost like the listeners of the song who are in the song too. Um, and then the dogs start barking. Like I, I think it's so funny that those kids. Oh yeah, the dogs. I think it's so funny that those kids later that they were friends of Eric Trufeldman who later joined the magic band. That that's such a small world kind of, you know, these musicians around this area all knowing each other, knowing each other's families and so forth. It's 
it it's funny to me that there's that connection and um in terms of like the variety of songs on this album i first listened to this on cd rather than on uh, vinyl so there was no side breaks and this one the first time i listened to this album i just cranked up the volume at the end because i wanted to hear what these kids were saying to him Where did you move her from? Uh, just from Cedar. Yeah. From Cedar? Yeah. She's married. What do you think? Sounds, Sounds good. good. It's a bush recording. We're out recording the bush. And so I've got it super loud. At which point the drums, the intro drums to Moonlight on Vermont kick in, and I'm convinced I still have some hearing loss from that because that's the the abruptness of that change from like you can barely hear it to these blasting drums coming in is is one of the. Of course, it's not nearly as bad a transition because I believe this is the last song on side. Is this the last song on side one? Oh, sorry, I was just, I was just gonna say yeah that you still get the abruptness of that transition then on on side one of the vinyl where it's you're cranking it up to try and hear what they're saying and suddenly the next song comes in like a steamroller i know and i think i think it's brilliant editing um well you, it's it you, but for, there's like maybe 10 20 seconds of just dogs barking and they're really it's like it's a lot of dogs it's like maybe four or five dogs and when i hear that i i, I picture like this sort of primordial san fernando valley full of wolves um and that's why to me, to me, the song is sort of about animals because it starts off with like, you know, Van Weed and Victor doing their kind of animal honking thing. And it ends up with these with these dogs barking. And um, and then like, yeah, mo- mo- most and whoever, you know, did the sequencing was just so brilliant because they didn't go like fade to silence. Uh, uh, Moonlight on Vermont just kicks in over this kind of ambient noise so in a way it's set the beginning sounds even louder than than it would because probably you're straining to hear the ambient noise um i think it's just an it's an it's a it's a really incredible side and i think it's in a really like that's another reason why i like to talk about uh hair pie bake two or bake one because it has these changes within it it has the it has the horns it has the band then it has the um um the talking and you, and you're kind of trying to figure out how it all makes sense. But the whole side is like that. It starts off with uh, Frownland, which is, you know, you know, just super avant-garde rock. And then I think that there's an acapella song and then there's Dachau blues, which yep. you know, is kind of bluesy. And then there's Elegaru, which is um, really the first kind of like trout masky sounding song on the record. I, w- I think. Uh, if you don't count Frownland, where where you really kind of get this, you know, this the sense of the, or or you know, tr- maybe along along with uh, along with Frownland, and then you so Elegaru, and which ends with Elegaru, and then the then the horns come on, and um and then you you have hair, hair pie bake one, and then you end with this like totally you know outrageous, you know, just like like raging rock song. Um, of Moonlight on Vermont, it's just a great side, and it also shows you like what he's doing. Every song is different. It's like it really changing is. the channels, and so even within Hair Pie Bake One, the three parts are really different. And you're trying, and that's part of I think what makes the album so um, 
you know, so great is that you're trying to kind of figure out how these parts go together. Do they even go together? Like, are they even really parts? <laughs> is it, is it a, is it just totally improvised? Is it a jam? Like, like, you know, like sort of like, what's the, what's the, what's the relation to the different parts? And, um, and, you know, now I see it's actually a fairly sophisticated song, especially musically in the middle. But, you know, the beginning and the end are very much improvised. Um, so I, I think it's I think it's a good record for sides. I have to I have to say whoever sequenced it really did a good job of that. It was probably Zappa. And he and he, he really did a good job of um, of uh, putting the sides together. It, it really is sequenced to maximize the amount of variety mm-hmm. that there is in the album. And and yet at the same time, achieve this kind of sense of, of flow. One thing that um, has come up a lot in the different episodes I've recorded is when, when people are are struggling for analogies for this album, and maybe it's just the influence of, as you you mentioned, the the litany of animals that are referenced on this this record. People tend to go for kind of organic, um, wild analogies of what this music is like. The um, when I when I was speaking to to Ben yesterday, he he referred to this record as being like an octopus. Um, and there is this kind of the amount of effort that the band put in to create something that ends up sounding very alien and yet strangely somehow natural and organic is really, I think, one of the things that makes this an unduplicable album. Like there's there's no way anyone could make another one of this. And Van Vliet never made another one of this. Like Lick My Decals Off is probably the closest. And that's still already moving in in different directions from how how much of a a singular organism this whole this whole record is yeah i i think part of that is just the tremendous amount of inefficiency that was built into the the composition and um and and rehearsing of it i mean even with with um decals he he was recording onto tapes and giving the tapes to harkelrod harkelrod would go work on the tapes but with 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 um with uh, Thomas Kupika, he had French just sitting there while he was noodling on the piano. French is like trying to transcribe it. Um, you know, they, they they sort of get parts for all the instruments. Um, then the then the then everybody learns their parts separately, and then and then they all um, play them together, and they don't the parts don't kind of come together, so they have to figure out how to make them come together. And this is all you know over eight months of you know, um, maybe nine, a long time, almost a year or whatever of, of living in one place. Um, and, and, um, you know, in kind of a cult-like environment. So it's sort of a total environment. And I think there's the, the inefficiency probably was part of Van Vliet's evil plan because the, he didn't want the musicians to just get into a groove. He wanted to withhold as much from them as he could, right? In part, just because he didn't really know what he was doing. But even the even, I mean, you have to say that he's a pretty genius composer based on these songs, or that French is a genius arranger, or that somebody's a genius, and there maybe everybody's a genius. And the octopus's little tendrils, you know, just went out to everybody who was involved in this record because it's you know the the instrumental tracks are are incredible, but the, the way they came together was tremendously inefficient. I mean, you look at other, you know, great albums and, and they just, yeah, I just don't know. I just can't think of anyone where you have 
you have them kind of composed improvisationally and then arranged improvisationally by people who didn't really have a have an end in sight over such a long period of time i don't know i mean yeah i don't i don't i think it's not duplicable either you could do something like it but it wouldn't sound that way based on the the samuel andreev interview with him cotton sounded like of all the people who were involved in this cotton sounded the most traumatized by the experience like it sounded like he needed some very severe professional help after dealing with this the environment of of being under van vliet's control for that amount of time yeah well i mean no i, I think he i yeah i think he they were all you know it was it was to a certain extent like you know, I don't think the Manson uh, um, um, comparisons are for that, are that far out because I think they were all on acid a lot of the time. I think there was a lot of a lot of stuff that I didn't document in my piece because it's well documented. But you know, I don't think Van Vliet right. was a was a nice person, and I don't think he was nice to those guys. And I think that he, um, you know, sort of imagined, you know, like you know, sort of, you know, I know Charles Mingus was rough on a lot of his musicians, but they got to go home at night. You know, these, this right. is just a total situation. And, you know, you know, I mean, John, you know, they, he, he kicked John Van or he kicked John French out, probably in a sense because he knew how much French was really involved in the, in the making of the album. I mean, I mean, the, 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 the group that made Lick My Decals Off was, it set, was very similar in terms of personnel, except swapping out, um, you know, uh, uh, Jeff Cotton for, um, the person whose name you're going to tell me, the guy who plays in the marimbas, um, oh, hell. art trip, uh, art trip. Yeah. But it's not the same sound because they, it's, there's just this incredible density of, of sound on trot mask. I think just comes from the, those insane rehearsals. Um, even if, even if Van Vliet is mixed over that, over the, over the band, they're still incredibly dense. The pieces are just so dense. Um, no, I don't think it's duplicable. I know um, one of the one of the complaints that that the rest of the band had about the the inclusion of Victor Hayden was that it was uh, you know they had worked for for you know days and hours uh, rehearsing this music and he comes in with a horn that he really is basically unable to play and is still considered part of the band. I, I pulled this quote from Harkle Road, and he's quoted in French's book. He said, "Vic was a talented painter." Um, I think the things he had to put up with to be around Don caused him to adopt the snottiest little fucking attitude I've ever been around. He's breathing with a horn in his mouth, moving his fingers, and he's in the band, which I can certainly understand their frustration if they're rehearsing for, you know, 12, 14 hour days trying to record this music. And then uh, Don and his cousin are are kind of smearing abstract horn over it. Um, but my only my only comment on that really is that I feel like of all the the band members who got assigned stage names, it, it's unfortunate that the mascara snake didn't really contribute more because that has got to be the coolest stage name of any of the different band members. I mean, some of them ended up stuck with pretty rough names. Like I've oh, I know, I know. It's a great it's... like I've always thought. Antenna Jimmy Siemens is is I mentioned it before on the show. That's a rough one to be stuck with as a stage name. It, it doesn't entirely surprise me that he left. I mean, I'd probably leave too if someone suggested that I go by that name. But Mascara Snake is definitely the coolest. I know. He, he says it on the record. Yes, the Mascara Snake 
fast and bulbous. Um, fast <laughs> and bulbous. You, you can hear it in that exchange where he's like, no, no, you're supposed to say, and a tin teardrop. And Hayden's like, what? You didn't tell me how I was supposed to say a tin teardrop. Like, you know, it's like, I think that, 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 that's kind of like a little miniature of a lot of the record. It's like, like what? I'm, you're telling me I'm supposed to say a tin teardrop, but you didn't tell me I had to say a tin teardrop? Like, when did I find out I was supposed to say a tin teardrop? Um, and so I, I think in that sense, probably <laughs> Hayden, Hayden didn't, he probably, well, he just didn't do as much. I can totally understand why the band members would, would be, would be uh, resentful of Hayden. And I can also understand why, why Van Vliet would want to, would want to bring resentment into the band circle. I don't think he was going for a good vibe, you know, good vibes. I think in in that sense, he, you know, like, like any good cult leader, he kind of, he kind of pit people against each other. And I think in that sense, like he probably didn't, I mean, I don't know if he did this on purpose, but, um, you know, just bringing in somebody who from outside the circle, who's basically non-musical, you know, it's just a way of saying kind of like, screw you to these musicians. Um, so in that sense, I think that what, that what you read by, by Harkle Road is maybe in a sense, like kind of like part of the design, part of, um, sort of the psychological, um, I don't know what you'd call it, but just the psychological manipulation that, that Van Vliet was doing. Um, you know, I mean, I think that those guys just probably felt like we don't, we don't, you know, we cannot catch a break. All we're doing is sitting around rehearsing and he never likes it. And we have to do, go through these, you know, endless, you know, kind of like talks. Um, uh, you know, it's just, it's very, very profound to me that they, that they could play that stuff all the way through over and over again. Um, and basically like the, the way it came together was so kind of haphazard and inefficient. But by the time they got it, like they, they were, they did it in such a uh, unison that like when you listen to the, uh, the grow fins CD that has the, the instrumental tracks, it's like, that would be a great jazz record if you put it out, mm-hmm. you know, they, they just sounded, they just sounded so great. I, I uh, recently read a thing there and I think I've quoted this on the show before where Robin Hitchcock was talking about this album and the, the torment that the band members went through. And he said something along the lines of, but at the end of it, they got Trout Mask Replica and many have suffered more for less, which I'm not sure if the band would feel that way, but I, I certainly uh, mu- music music nerds throughout the world are are grateful for the what they put into making this really singular accomplishment. Yeah. Uh, so on the show, usually um, Darren will have us rate the tracks. Um, I have already said and say on every episode, every track for me is five out of five because I don't feel like you can compare it to anything. It, it's just completely a unique thing. But um, I'm going to throw it to you if you want to rate the track out of five. And also if you have uh, anything else that you want to say about it before we close out. I prefer not to. I'm not I'm not really big into ratings. I mean, I could probably, with this album, I'm really not. I could probably rate, like, you know, Exile on Main Street songs out of five. But with this with this album, I mean, it's just like, in a way, it's like a one because it's just such a mess. <laughs> like, really, if you were going to say, like, if you compare it to some of the other, compare it to some of the other, uh, you know, material on this, just even on the side, it's like, what, you know, like, you know, it's not even really a song. It's like a, you know, it's a collage of a of 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 a 
of a jam session plus a rehearsal that sounds like a jam session with a with a with a conversation tacked onto it. Like what the hell? I mean, I think in that sense, it's that it's, that's why you can only look at the album holistically. Uh, at least this one. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to, you know. I mean, but if I'm if I'm really going to rate it, I'm going to say a one because I think it's you know in in some way it's like kind of a crappy track, but. But just because of the whole context and because of the, um, you know, uh, the the ethos of the album, and because what the band is doing is actually, you know, as your last guest showed on on Hair Pie, is actually very musically complex. I think you actually have a you have a a, a pretty neat little package of stuff going on. But it's 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 um as it's it's in terms of it coming together, it's just a mess. It's a guy sitting with a very primitive mixing board in a house, like kind of flipping the switches, you know, semi-randomly. I don't know. I mean, (laughs) yeah, this album kind of defies categorization in that way. It defies rating in that way. Like you said, there's, there's records where you can go, Oh, this song's better than the last song, but because this is such a unique animal and it's all of a piece in this way, that that it defies standard categorization like and that's not to say that every single track is brilliant but they're just you it's so hard to separate it out into something something um that you can parse as on a track by track basis um so uh eric gudas uh do you have anything that you would like to plug or push or just raise awareness of oh well, you had given me a talking point. Do I think the record is difficult? So I'll just kind of give you my brief summation of that. Is that okay? Oh, great. Yeah, perfect. Thank you. I think it's I think it's a sort of a the whole question of is is art difficult is kind of a red herring question. Um, I think in this case, it probably helps to have heard some Howling Wolf and maybe some Sixty Jazz by Archie Shep or Coltrane or Eric Dolphy. But any work of art that gets that creates its own idiom gets swarmed by haters. I was looking it up last night. Picasso's Guernica was not universally beloved in 1937. That surprised me. Uh, Ornette Coleman, when they got mm-hmm. to New York City, the, the critics were rushing to the bathroom to ice pick each other to death. And then the one that lived would go home and write a 5,000 es- word essay for Downbeat, either about how Ornette Coleman was the best thing that ever happened to jazz or Ornette Coleman was, was killing jazz. But now, you know, you get those, those, you know, those songs like Lonely Woman or, or whatever. And, they, you know, they, they sound like standards. Um, so, um, you know, our Eric Dolphy out to lunch, I think, you know, if, if you go and look at a bunch of reviews of it on um, like Rate Your Music or something, it's all by people who've like, they think they're getting a regular Blue album. They listen to one song and they're like pissed off. <laughs> um, and so I, I, I just think that, that if that, that there is art that creates its own vocabulary and it's always going to have haters. Um, and it's, it's, and to a certain extent, it just takes time. Um, I think with Trap Mask Replica, because as, as you talked about, it's sort of a really unduplicable album. I think maybe it's just kind of hanging out there and you either are the kind of person who's going to listen to it a lot and get into it, or you're not. You know, and that and, and that has nothing to do with its difficulty. It has more to do with your willingness to get into it. If you want to get into it, there's a lot there. I will say in on uh, trail on uh, piggybacking on what you said about three women. If there's anyone listening to this podcast who has never listened to Eric Dolphy's album Out to Lunch, um, you really owe it to yourself to hear that. Uh, 
please you should go check that out uh, if you like trout mask replica then that's i don't think that out to lunch is going to present as particularly difficult to you but it's it's a fantastic album so it's absolutely worth absolutely worth checking out it's definitely in my my top 10 uh so i think that is going to do it here for uh it, oh, it is great it's great I think that's going to do it here for Hair Pie Bake One. Um, if you want to follow us on Twitter, we are at underscore track by track. I am at Joel A. Bakker. That's B-A-K-K-E-R. I am the same on Instagram. I would recommend if you're going to follow me, follow me on Instagram rather than Twitter. I don't tweet very much because Twitter is a hellscape, but Instagram is mostly pictures of my cat and who doesn't like that. Uh, Mr. Goodest, uh, you have any socials that you would like to promote? You have to. I have to spell this out. This is my. This is my Instagram, and I, I do. I do a fair amount of little, uh, kind of like mini essays on it. Uh, it's screen shots with a Z, and then C H E Z, and then P A N D Y. Um, screen shots Shay Pandy. Um, and I have that just because I have a teenager who wants to have a separate identity from me on, on Instagram. And so understood we are, we, our last name, my last name is not on there at all. <laughs> so, um, but, um, yeah, you can follow me. I mean, I, I, I just put up, you know, um, I don't think I've, I don't, well, I think I've done my dog a couple times. I do a lot about film actually. It's sort of like where my, my little like film critic, um, comes nice. out. So. Well, thank you again very, very much for taking the time to appear on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. And thank you very much for listening. Where did you move here from? Uh, just from Reseda. here. Reseda? Here. She's nice. What do you think? Sounds, Sounds good. good. The bush recording. We're out recording the bush. The name of the composition is me, Neon Me Dream of an Octofish. No, it's Hair Pie.